Galatians chapter 1. So I did it again. I know two weeks ago I said we would look at verses 10 through 24. Guess what? We're not. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Um, I mean, it's not, 10 through 24 really is part of one long argument as Paul is going to start defending his faith, but verses 10 through 12 kind of set the stage before he starts looking at his, at his ministry. Um, so we're going to just look at verses 10 through 12 this morning. So I'll read those verses and then we'll start digging in. So Paul continues in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll stop there. So... Of course, before Paul defends his own ministry, he's going to defend his gospel. And he's going to defend his gospel by saying, the gospel that I preached to you that you received is not a man's gospel. It was received by or through revelation. That's really the, the, the thrust of these verses. And then he's going to go on and talk about his personal ministry, the rest of chapter 1, and then some encounters that he has in chapter 2 before he really then gets into digging into the meat of the gospel message in the rest of chapter 2 and then 3 and 4 and so on. But just to recap from where we were last week, uh, or two weeks ago, I keep saying that now, two weeks ago we looked at verses 6 through 9. Uh, verses 6 through 9 begin the meat of Paul's letter. Uh, he has introduced himself. He has um, you know, brought, brought through the introduction there. He uh, tells you who is writing this letter, to whom he's writing this letter, and he gives a small greeting, and then immediately in verse 6, he gets right to the problem at hand, which is the fact that the believers in these Galatian churches, and if you remember, these would be churches that Paul has established during his first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapters 13 and 14. These churches in that southern central region of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he had gone through there in his first missionary journey. He had planted churches in the towns of Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and Derby and Lystra. And as he had left, apparently following almost probably right on the heels of Paul, where some people came into those churches and started preaching another gospel. So when Paul hears about this, he then expresses his his astonishment, his, his, the fact that he is so shocked that they have so quickly departed from the grace of him who called you. In other words, you are departing from the grace of God and you are attaching yourself to a gospel that is not a gospel. That, that was the point he, he makes in those verses. And he says, look, it's, there, there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. And there are those who trouble you, and they, what, they do, what they're doing is they're perverting the gospel. They're distorting the gospel. They're, they're distorting it by adding to it. That's, that's the problem. They're distorting the gospel by adding to the gospel. And as we will see later on through the book of Galatians, what they are adding is a sense of works. They are adding 
that you are saved by faith, but you continue in that faith by works. Or in order to be a Christian, you have to follow certain Jewish uh, religious rituals, circumcision, dietary laws, things such as that. And he's like, that is no gospel. What you're doing there, when you add anything to the finished work of Christ, you get nothing in return. It's addition, it's subtraction by addition. (laughs) You know, we say addition by subtraction. Well, this is subtraction by addition. You're adding something, and the net result is zero. So Paul is very shocked about this. And then uh, in verses 8 and 9, then he comes out with a very strong statement. It's like, look, if I or an angel or anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one which you've received earlier, let that one be accursed. He pronounces a, a, an, an anathema. It's uh, the word that is used in the Old Testament to speak of a ban, uh, a a devoting to destruction type of deal. Let that person be cut off. Let that person be devoted to destruction. Let that person be accursed with no hope of restoration. Why? Because you are distorting the gospel. You are are perverting the good news. And when you pervert the good news, it becomes bad news. And he just repeats it in verse 9. So that's that's how fired up Paul is about this. He is so fired up, he repeats himself. You know, it's like, as I said, again, if anyone comes, anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. So that's where we left off last time, two weeks ago. Now, as we look at, as I said, starting in verse 10, um, really through the end of the chapter 1, and going really into chapters 2, you could say up to verse 14 at least, Paul's now going to defend his ministry. He's going to defend his ministry. He's going to defend his gospel. And he's going to defend his gospel by saying, look, the gospel you've received is not the true gospel because that's a man's gospel. What I preach to you is not a man's gospel. It's one that is received by revelation. So he's going to defend his gospel, and then he's going to defend his own ministry by looking at his own kind of personal story. This is one of the uh, several places that you have in the New Testament where Paul kind of talks about his life. He talks about it here. He talks, you, you, he, you see him talking about it in the book of Acts several times. And then he talks about it also in the book of Philippians. And we'll look at those passages again when we get to that later section here. But what we're going to see here is the true gospel does not please men, nor is it a man's gospel, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Kind of the theme that ties these three verses together. The true gospel is not a man-pleasing gospel. It is not one that is a man's gospel at all. It doesn't originate from man. And it is originated from a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. That's what we'll see as we go through this. And that's how, the, that's how I broke it up on your outline there. You've got three points. So you've got a man-pleaser versus a servant of Christ in verse 10. A not a man's gospel. In other words, it did not originate from man. In verse 11, where did it come from? Well, it was received. The gospel is something that is received. Okay, it's something that we take in. It is something that is given to us. It is an announcement made to us that we receive, we hear, we believe, and we trust in. It is not something that comes up through our own thinking. It's not something that we develop on our own. It's not something that, you know, people 
thought up in a room somewhere, in a, in a back room filled with cigar smoke and people plotting and everything. No, none of that is the gospel. The gospel is something that God reveals to mankind, and it is revealed specifically, fully, and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. It is revealed in the Old Testament. That's what we're going to see later on in the book of Galatians. It's revealed in the Old Testament as well, but in shadows, in, in symbols, in things that look forward to Christ. The things themselves are not the gospel. It's what they point to that is the gospel. So we'll see that as we move on. Well, let's look at our first point. Verse 10, man pleaser versus a servant of Christ. So again, verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or, or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So then again, after the initial rebuke that the Galatians, the, the believers in these Galatian churches were so quickly deserting, so quickly uh, turning from God and the grace of God found in Christ, Paul then lays out a, a fundamental difference between uh, a true gospel and a false gospel. And that, that fundamental difference is this. A man's gospel, a false gospel, is a man-pleasing gospel. It is one that will tickle our ears. It is one that will appeal to our flesh. That is, that is a false gospel. false gospel will appeal to the fleshly nature of man, to our sinful nature, to our, to our desire to try to work and earn something. It'll tickle our ears. It'll, it'll sound right and good versus one that pleases God. The true gospel uh, pleases God. So he asks rhetorically, this is a rhetorical question where he says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? The answer, of course, is he's seeking the approval of God. Or am I trying to please man? No. The answer there, of course, is also no. He is not seeking the approval of man. Uh, turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 4. This is not Paul's story. This is Peter and John's story, but it's a similar thing. You're going to see this contrast between man-pleasing and God-pleasing in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verses 19 and 20. Now this is Peter and John. They are before the Sanhedrin. They're before the council. Why are they before the council? Because in chapter 3, Peter and John were on the temple stairs, and there was a lame man there begging, and they, he sees Peter and John and begs to them, says, please, sir, can you give me some money? And Peter looks, in fact, I like the way the, the, the text says he looked intently at the man. It's like he started, you know, boring holes into him with his eyes and said, I have no money to give you, but what I do give you, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and he starts walking and he's leaping and running and walking and, and he's praising God for this. And, and because of that commotion, then the, uh, Peter and John are arrested and they're brought before the Sanhedrin and they're, they're grilled before them. And that's where you get this great passage where boldly Peter speaks up in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then they tell him later on, as they confer, they say, okay, uh, you know, verse 16, what shall we do with these men? 
for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all. So they can't deny the sign. So it's like, well, what are we going to do? You know, we can't, we can't cover this up. So they called them in, verse 18, and charged them, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here, the command comes from the Jewish leadership to Peter and John. Do not talk about Jesus. And what do they say? Well, Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. And then I love verse 20. It says, for we cannot but speak. We cannot help it. We are compelled to speak of the name of Jesus. We are compelled to speak of what we have seen and heard. To deny what we have seen and heard would be to bear false witness to what God has done in this world. So Peter and John go to the Sanhedrin and it's like, look, you tell us, should we please man or should we please God? You know, which is a great question to the religious leaders because that puts them in a corner. What are they going to say? You know, well... Maybe they could possibly say, well, you are pleasing God by listening to us, okay, because we are the, the established leadership in, in, in Israel here. But Peter's like, look, we have a higher authority. Yes, we respect you. Yes, you are, you are in a position of authority, but we have a higher authority than you, and that is God. God is over you, thus we must listen to him. Later on, you see this in Acts 5, verse 29, Again, in verse 28, they, this, so Peter, and, and uh, I think they're arrested at this point, or maybe it's just, yeah, they're arrested and then they're let go. Um, verse 28, the leadership again says, We strictly charge you not to preach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answer, We must obey God rather than men. People pleaser, man pleaser versus servant of God. Peter and John were servants of God, and they did not preach in such a way as to please man. Okay? They were not trying to be disobedient. They were just following the higher authority, which comes from God. Jesus himself said, go into the world, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So again, back to Galatians 1. Paul here lists two extremes. Seeking the approval of man or seeking the approval of God. And he lists, he, he, the way he describes them here is as opposite extremes uh, here, right? You cannot, you, know, it, it, you cannot merge the two. You are either preaching for man's approval or you're preaching for God's approval. Now, backing this up a little bit, when you... If you were to go and ask the average person on the street and ask them, how do you get to heaven? What do you think the kind of answers you might hear back from them? If you were to just ask the average person on the street, how do you get to heaven? Assuming they believe in a heaven. Yeah, by being a good person, right? Okay. So in other words, it's, it's works-based, right? Okay, if I do enough good, people will say, well, I hope, you know, I hope my good will outweigh my bad. Right? So they think, you know, the, just the kind of the, the generic default thinking of there's a scale, right? And every good work I do 
puts the scale in one direction. It's like, oh, I did something bad. You know, there it goes back in this way. I better do, you know, better help some old ladies across the street. Better, you know, make sure. Maybe I'll rake my neighbor's leaves. You know, maybe I'll shovel their driveway. You know, do some good works here. That's how man thinks. And if you want to please man, if you want to pre preach a man-pleasing gospel, preach something like that. Because what does it put the focus on? It puts the focus on you. Right? You're the one who's got to do something. That's what we like to hear. Right? And, then, and then we especially like to hear when you tell us we've got to do something and you make it easy. Right? When you lower the bar so low that it doesn't matter. Like you know, Anybody can get over that bar. That's what we like to hear. False gospels seek the approval of men by feeding into this sort of works-based mentality that we have. We are hardwired for works. That's how we are made. That's, that's what it was, that was the situation that was set up in the garden before the fall. God put man in the garden. He put Adam in the garden. He said, you will tend the garden. You will keep the garden. And I'm going to give you a command. Do not eat from that tree, else you die. In other words, then if you succeed in that, you will live. Works. That was a works type of covenant, if you will. We'll get into that in later lessons. If you remember last time, See, my notes I put last week, should have been two weeks ago, <laughs> or I should have just said last time. Last time, <laughs> when we looked at verses 6 through 9, we, we looked at three false gospels. I mean, there's more, but we just looked at three generic false gospels. You had the prosperity gospel, the personal gospel, the political gospel. Or I didn't make those up. I mean, those, I didn't alliterate those. I found that in an article somewhere. It was useful alliteration. Now, the prosperity gospel is, a, in a sense, it's a workspace gospel. Well, why do you say it? Well, because it says if you believe a certain amount, if, if, you, if, you are, you know, if you do certain things, if you have enough faith, God will bless you. Thus, if you're not being blessed, what is the, the conclusion you can make? You're not doing enough. You're not having enough faith. You're not, you're not you know, you're, 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 you're weak. You're, you're, fail, you're failing here. You're, you're not uh, doing enough. And it also feeds into our, our it's a, it's a man-pleasing gospel. Why? Because it, what is, what is the, the bonus of this gospel? Well, it teaches you that if you do the right things, you can be wealthy, you can be healthy, you can have a good life, you can have, as one teacher will say, you can have your best life now, right? <laughs> that, that's, that's a false gospel, right? That's a false gospel, or the gospel of personal uh, you know, self-improvement. You follow these steps. You do these things. You do these spiritual disciplines, whatever you want to call them. You do these things, and your life will get better. You, you will be a better you. Be a better you. Again, workspace, man-pleasing. It puts us in the, in the spotlight. Or the political gospel, right? You can, you can make the world a better place if you... You know, if you believe certain things, if you go out and, and you, you vote for the right candidates, or if you try to build a, a utopia, or, or whatever you want to call it. Again, it's a man-focused gospel. It is a man-pleasing gospel. It is a false gospel. And then Paul here says, look, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he goes on to say, look, if my goal was to please man, if my goal was to tickle your ears, then I could not, nor would I be a servant of Christ. 
I would then be a servant of man. Again, this, this extreme, this, this, this uh, opposite here. If I am trying to please man, then I, w- I am no longer a servant of Christ. I'm no longer a servant of God. James 4.4 says, if you are, um, well, I'll just look it up. I don't want to butcher the passage. <laughs> James 4.4 4 is really good at this. I had it in my mind. It's one of those things, right? I had it in my mind. It just kind of popped right out. Okay. Um, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, that that diametrically opposed poles there. If you are trying to please the world, if you're trying to please man, you are thereby setting yourself up against God. The gospel brings offense. Necessarily, the gospel brings offense. Um, Turn to Matthew chapter 10, please. The gospel brings offense. Why does the gospel bring bring offense? Because it destroys all man-made ways of earning merit before God. The gospel tears you apart. If you are trying to earn your righteousness before God, the gospel is going to tear you apart. It's going to destroy you. It's It's going to... lay waste any man-made attempt to earn merit before God. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. So this is uh, Jesus as he sends out the twelve. He says this in other places too. So this is not the only time he says these things, but here he's sending out the twelve to sort of evangelize throughout the countryside. And then he says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. But wait, I thought Jesus, you know, in his birth was announced peace to, you know, <laughs> peace to, you know, and goodwill toward men. Yeah. If you've, you know, he brings a gospel of peace. But Jesus himself will cause division. Why will he cause division? Again, because he's going to lay waste to any man-made attempt to earn righteousness before God. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not <clears throat> excuse me, take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus comes, and the the ministry that he brings, and the gospel that he brings, is going to bring enmity, in a sense, from the world. Because he's going to tear apart your attempts to try to earn righteousness by yourself. And that's what he means when he says he's going to cause division. Moreover, if you identify with Jesus... It's not going to, far from having your best life now, it could very well tell your, tear your world apart if you come to Jesus. That's why he says you need to take up your cross. Now, this is before Jesus is even crucified. So this, the cross at this point is not a symbol of Jesus' crucifixion at this point because he hasn't died yet. What was the cross? Well, it was a Roman method of execution. More so, it was a shameful way of executing somebody, right? Because typically when they were hung on the cross, they were naked, 
before all the world. They had been beaten. They had been bloodied. So they are a, a bloody mess. And not only that, but in the Jewish mind, uh, the law says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So this is an object of derision. This is an object of shame. It is an object of cruelty. And it's like, look, count the cost. If you're going to follow me, it is going to be a life of, of, of division. It's going to be a life in which people are going to hunt you down. It's going to be a life in which people are going to want to kill you. Your family is going to t- uh, hate you. You've got to better count the cost. Right, following Christ. That's what he's saying here. Count the cost. And it's, a, it's really, it's, it's, it's hammering the person who's hearing this with the law. You, you cannot, in other words, you cannot earn any righteousness before me on your own works. You have to, you have to deny all of that. You have, to, you have to deny your own self-righteousness. That's why when Paul in Philippians 3, he says, look, when I met Christ, I looked at what I was doing, and I realized I'm like that man in Luke who says, like, you know, who, who's building a building and realizes I don't have enough to, to finish my building. Right? I'm building a building of my own self-righteousness, and I cannot finish the building. So I have to scrap it, and I have to beg mercy from the Lord. So the gospel brings offense. You cannot preach a man-pleasing gospel and be a servant of Christ. So this is a point where I think, uh, as we as Christians need to be better, because we seem uh, all too willing, I don't mean us, but I'm just talking about Christians in general. Um, you see it particularly, let me put it this way, okay. Social media, for all its wonders that it does in connecting people, it's an awful place for, <laughs> for any kind of fruitful discussions on anything. And, it, and that goes for Christians, too. If you hang around even so-called reformed Facebook groups or whatever, you know, we're sniping at one another just as much as, and it's always over secondary issues, and it, it, that's what irritates me the most. It's like, you're, you're sitting here, you're, 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 you know, all these discussion threads, and they're going all the way down, and it's like, and, and what are you arguing over? It's like, well, whether or not you should celebrate Christmas. It's like, okay, well, what does that have to do with the gospel? Again, I, I don't, it's like, Paul didn't, he didn't do that, Okay. You know, in 1 Corinthians, again, I, I always reference that because 1 Corinthians, the church there was a mess. And Paul had a lot to say. But notice the way he says it a lot of times. It's like, look, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. It's like, I want to instruct you on this. You need to stop that, okay? Here, Paul is worked up because what the Galatians are doing here is abandoning the gospel itself. They are abandoning that which is central to the faith. And Christians seem all too willing to die on hills that are secondary issues at best, issues of conscience uh, at worst, and not when it comes to the gospel. Um, And the urge to be a people pleaser is strong, right? We don't want people to be angry at us. I mean, I don't want to necessarily go out and make people angry with me. (laughs) All right? And we're going to fail from time to time. So we need to pray for wisdom and courage to major on the majors. All right, let's move on to verse 11. So he doesn't want to be a man pleaser. He wants to be a servant of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say that, look, this gospel is not a man's gospel. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me 
sorry, preached by me is not man's gospel or according to man. You might have according to man. It's not according to man. It is not a man's gospel. That's the, the gospel I preach to you is not something that, that, that was created by man. He preaches, what he preaches is not according to man. It is, it is not a man's gospel. When you read through the Bible, this is interesting. When you read through the Bible and you see how the Bible describes the so-called biblical heroes, you know, what, what do you see about them? Well, you see that they're all fallen, they're all frail, they're all failures. Abraham, right? Abraham, the father of the faithful, right? Father Abraham, he is, he is highly esteemed by Christians, Jews, Muslims. Abraham, well, Abraham at times showed a little bit of cowardice. Abraham lied. <laughs> uh, he lied to the point where he almost brought curses upon an innocent people because he lied about who his wife was. Uh, Jacob. You know, I mean, good old Jacob, right? The, the, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. What did Jacob do? Well, Jacob stole his brother's birthright, right? He tricked his brother. He lied to his brother. He lied to his father, right? He and his mother concocted a plan in which he would get the blessing instead of Esau. How about Moses? Good old Moses, the giver of the law, right? Well, Moses was a murderer. Moses killed a man, Moses, when God called him in the Sinai wilderness, almost refused to go. He's like, look, I, I, I'm, he says, I don't speak well. I'm, I'm, you know, send somebody else, please. Gideon, good old Gideon, right? Brave Gideon and his 300 men. Well, Gideon showed a lack of faith, right? When, when he was told, go and rise up and you will deliver the people. He's like, can you give me some proof? And then the next day he said, can you give me some more proof? <laughs> now, you know, can, you, can you give me some, you know, show me that I'm going to be this man. And then later on in Gideon's life, you find out he, gets, he falls into idolatry and all these other things. Samson. I mean, Samson's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Faith Hall of Fame. Well, Samson, my goodness, he was a vile person in his life. You read through the book of Judges. I mean, he, all kinds of things. He was sort of, in a sense, a... a, a a microcosmic view of what was going on in the nation of Israel as a whole. He, was, he, he despised the Nazareth vow that he was put under. He, he willingly made himself unclean by touching dead carcasses. He, he despised his parents. He went out and married a, a Canaanite woman, a Philistine woman. I mean, he did all kinds of things. Samuel. Samuel. Uh, I mean, all of these... I mean, Samuel is a, a failure as a father, right? His... When, when he was getting ready to die, and, and uh, they were like, please set a king over us because your sons are awful. <laughs> you know, same thing with David. Good old David, the, the great king. Well, you know David's story, right? David himself was also a failure as a father. Look at his sons. You know, look at Absalom. You know, his, you know he was such a great father that his son wanted to take over his own kingdom, okay? Uh, David murdered. He committed adultery. Peter, John, I mean, I can go on. All of the heroes of the Bible are, you know, they're fallen, they're frail, they're like us. And if this were a man's gospel, if this were a man's story, I believe these heroes would be looked at in better light, right? I mean, they would be, they would be portrayed as heroic. They would be portrayed as they're the ones that are conquering. They're the ones that are overcoming. We would be the centerpiece of the story if this were a man's gospel. We would be the heroes. However, 
I believe the recurring theme of all of Scripture can be summed up in these words that Jesus says to the disciples that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If salvation were up to man, we would not be saved. If it was up to me to save myself, I would not be saved. If it was up to me to stay saved, I would not stay saved. With man, these are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians, when we looked at that, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this great passage in verses 18 through 31, where now here he's addressing the issues of uh, divisions in the church. But in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's Paul's gospel. It is not a man's gospel. A man's gospel would, be, would make sense to man. The fact that this is not man's gospel is seen in the fact that the gospel is seen as foolishness to the world. It is seen as weak. We looked at those heroes of the faith. Again, if this were man's gospel, those heroes of the faith would be actual heroes. Here we see that they are weak failures who needed God to save them time and time again, just like we need God to save us. The world sees the gospel as foolish or as a scandal. It is not a gospel according to man. Well, then what would a gospel according to man look like? Well, they would look like the prosperity gospel. They would look like the personal gospel. It would look like the, the, the political gospel. It would look like any other man-made gospel in which we are the centerpiece of the story, in which you know, everything comes and benefits us, in which we are the center of the world. That would be a man-pleasing gospel, because they're according to man. So you can see why Paul is so worked up in verses 6 through 9. These man-pleasing gospels, according to men, they are distortions of the gospel. They're perversions of the gospel. They are making the gospel something completely opposite of what it really should be. And then they rob the gospel of any and all saving power. Again, remember, if it were up to us, we would not be saved. With men, this is impossible. But that's the problem. Man-pleasing gospel, a man-centered gospel is saying with men, this is possible. (laughs) That's what a man's gospel is. It says, yes, you can earn salvation. 
I keep coming back to it. Jesus plus anything equals what? Nothing. Nothing. All right, so if the gospel is not a man-pleasing gospel, what is it then? Well, that's verse 12. It is not according to man, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. False gospels are received, or they are taught, or both, by or through men. But the true gospel comes only through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here Paul is, again, defending his gospel and his ministry against those people that he calls troublers, those who trouble you, verse 7. If you remember way back at the beginning, um, in verse 1 of chapter 1, notice how, again, how Paul defines it. Now, he, he often says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, but notice he takes a little bit more extra caution here. He says, look, I'm an apostle, but I'm an apostle not from men nor through man. Look, in other words, I did not receive my commission from a man, I did not receive my commission through a man. I did not receive my calling through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And we'll see, uh, Lord willing, next week, look at verse 15 of chapter 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who is the he who had set Paul apart before he was born? Who is the he there? God, right. God set me apart. <laughs> That's an amazing verse when you consider Paul's life, right? Before he was born, that means everything leading up to the point of the Damascus Road experience was, you know, I mean, God had already put his mark upon Paul's life, was pleased to reveal his son to me. And in a way, you could say that it is that actual revelation of Christ himself that, that Paul here receives as the gospel revelation. So in similar words, Paul here says the true gospel, his gospel, is one that was preached and received by the Galatians. It is not one that Paul received from man nor through man, nor was he taught it by man. He's not preaching a man's gospel. If he did, he should be accursed, right? That's what he says. Look, if I preach to you anything other than what you had received and believed through me earlier, then I should be accursed. If I come to you next Tuesday and I start preaching you a man-pleasing gospel, Paul says, look, I should be accursed. Same thing with me. If I come next Lord's Day and I come into this pulpit and I start preaching a man-pleasing gospel, I should be accursed. The gospel is of supernatural origin. It does not come from man. It was not received through men. And that's, again, that's a telltale sign of a man-made gospel. Not only does it please man, but it has its origins in man. Right? And, and you could tell that from the other false gospels in the world that you have here. Now we know when Paul there says, look, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He may have heard the gospel on many occasions. Right? I mean, Paul was there in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen gives his great speech. Stephen's there and he gives a great speech in Acts chapter 7. And at the very end, when he... When he accuses those who are listening, he says, you are stiff-necked and, and uh, always rejecting God. Then they begin to stone him. Well, Paul was there. Paul was there. You see it in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 58 of Acts, where it says, And the people who were getting ready to stone Stephen laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
He was there. And then in chapter 8, it says that he gave approval of that. In other words, as a representative of the Pharisee sect, as a representative of the Jewish ruling council, he was there approving of what was going on with Stephen. Now, Stephen gives a great speech, right? He goes through the entire history of, of, of Israel, and at the end, he brings the gospel. So Paul, probably on many occasions, heard the content of the gospel. But it wasn't until he saw the risen Christ himself on that road to Damascus, more than likely, was when it all began to click for Paul. I received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Think of how Moses received the law on the mountain, or the Old Testament's received uh, the word of God. The Old Testament prophets received the word of God. Paul here suggests that perhaps, verse 16, uh, it, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Reveal his son to me. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And perhaps in that revelation itself, and perhaps through some private revelations later, Paul received all of the content of the gospel. Now to be sure, you are hearing and you have received the gospel coming through a man, right? You know, if you're a believer in Christ, you have received the gospel through the teaching of a man, of a person. But it doesn't mean that it's man's gospel. When Paul says, I did not receive it by man or through man, it doesn't mean that you cannot receive the gospel through the teaching of a man or through the ministry of a man. It, what you're receiving is the apostolic faith once for all delivered by, to the saints, right? Jude 1 verse 3. The apostolic faith once for all delivered to the saints. It has been entrusted to the, to the apostles and when they uh, planted churches, as Paul will say to Timothy, then you now, you teach faithful men also to preach what you have heard from me. The apostolic faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the true gospel is not the product of mere men. This applies to us all as we catechize our children or grandchildren, as we witness to our neighbors or fellowship with one another. We are to interact in a way that is not a man-pleasing gospel. We are to teach and receive the true gospel, not a man-pleasing gospel that is according to men. So as I bring this to a close here, just a few quotes that I thought were helpful as we bring this to a close. Uh, the truth of the gospel, I don't know where this quote is, I, I didn't put down the, the source, I just knew, I had quotation marks in my handwritten notes, which means I knew I pulled it from somewhere. So these are not my words, I just can't tell you <laughs> where I found these words because I didn't put the source down. The truth of the gospel is not determined by the identity of the one who preaches, but by the content of the message. Okay? So, again, this goes to that idea we talked about how Paul says, look, the gospel I received was not taught to me by man, nor did I receive it by man. But you are receiving the gospel through a man. I am preaching, I, as a man, I am preaching you the gospel. But again, it's not determined by the identity of the one speaking. It is the content of the message that is being proclaimed. If it is an apostolic doctrine, then you are receiving the true gospel, not a man's man-made gospel. And of course, some may preach a distorted gospel to win the approval of man, right? That's why you get some of these big churches, if you will, these big, you know, you think of Joel Osteen's church, it boasts of tens of thousands of people each, each weekend that go to that church. And why is it always so filled? Well, because he tickles the ears of people. 
He says, look, you can have your best life now. You can be a better you. You can do this, that, and the other thing. And people like to hear that. Why are churches that preach the faithful gospel oftentimes half full? <laughs> well, because we're not here, I'm not here to please you, okay, in that sense. You know, I certainly don't want to offend anybody. That's not my intention. But I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm here to feed you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm here to feed you the true food, the manna from heaven, not some man-made gospel. So some may preach a distorted gospel to win the approval of man, men, but we preach the true gospel that in Jesus Christ we have the approval of the Father. That is the true gospel. Not one that pleases you, but one that tells you that you can be accepted by the Father through Jesus Christ through faith. This I got out of a commentary by um, Bill Riken, so I have the name here on this quote. The gospel is not man's good news about God. It is God's good news for man. Another quote from Riken. This gospel was not an invention or a tradition, but a revelation. And then, of course, Paul's regard for the truth then should inspire our own. We should be zealous in guarding, in teaching, and in listening to the true gospel. So, I mean, that goes for you too, right? <laughs> You're not just passive hearers here. As I'm preaching to you, if I start preaching something other than the gospel you've received, you need to rebuke me for that, right? You need to make me aware of that because I am here to preach you the good news, not, not some man-pleasing gospel, not one that tickles your ears, not one that sort of gets you thinking you can sort of earn merit with God, the one that says, look, you are received by God through Christ Jesus. You are made righteous by God through faith in Christ Jesus. You can rest in that good news and that any works that flow out of that are not there to earn favor with God, but they are there to show your thankfulness to God for what he has done for you in Christ Jesus.